Well, good morning, church, and welcome to Meadowlands this morning. Next week is our anniversary Sunday, and we are reminded of the Lord's faithfulness to this church, a local body of believers. There are times when we get to share what the Lord has done, like anniversaries or family gatherings. Family worship times are also a great opportunity to be reminded as we read scripture and see a point where God was faithful in the past with his people. It reminds us of a time in our not-so-distant past when the Lord was faithful to us as well. And we are encouraged in scripture to tell others of God's faithfulness. For example, Psalm 78 begins this way, Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth, and I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, telling to the generations to come the praises of the Lord, and his strength and his wonderful works that he has done. Why would we tell our children and our children's children? Well, the answer is found in Psalm 78, verses 5 to 7, which is our call to worship. For he has established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, the children who would be born, that they may arise and declare them to their children, that they may set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments." May we be reminded of God's faithfulness and continue to live for him with boldness. Chris, please come lead us in song and worship. Good morning. It's a blessing to be able to gather together and worship our Lord. Please stand as we enter our time of worship together by singing.
believers, we need to rely on God's wisdom to direct our lives. The third verse of our next hymn is a prayer. May we be given peace and love for the trials that lie ahead. In this way, when they do come, we can rest in the knowledge that God's wisdom has woven every event into a tapestry of his great plan. Thank you. 
standing for our time of prayer. Let's go before our Lord in prayer. We praise and thank you, Lord God, for the opportunity to worship you today. Thank you that though we were sinners, rebels, dead in our trespasses, you adopted us into your family through the life, work, death, and resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. We take comfort in your sovereign authority over the whole universe, from the smallest subatomic particles to the countless galaxies, from the smallest creature to the largest. You sustain and rule over it all. Though much of the world may grow increasingly dark and hostile to you and your word, yet nothing happens apart from your preordained plan and will. With the hope you have given us through the gift of eternal life and your Holy Spirit, help us to grow in our love for you and each other here at Meadowlands, and lead us into the works you have prepared beforehand for us to do. Empower us to take your gospel to all those around us who need to hear it. Lord, we give thanks for the work you are doing through pastors Kevin, Mark, and Jeff, and all the leaders and teachers here at Meadowlands. We ask your protection for them and their families, both spiritually and physically. Give them the gifts, wisdom, love, they need to be faithful under shepherds who feed, teach, exhort, and protect your sheep here at Meadowlands. Thank you for the work you're doing through the many missionaries that are supported by Meadowlands. <clears throat> and I just pray that you would bless, protect, and empower them to fulfill your great commission to be your witnesses and, to, and make disciples in the places and nations you've called them to serve. We also ask that you work in our society and government to enable us to live quietly and peaceably and that we can continue to freely worship and serve you. And as we sit under your teaching of your word this morning, this, uh, may your Holy Spirit continue his sanctifying work in each of our hearts and lives. Mold and shape us into the image of your Son and grant us not only the ears to hear it, but also the faith and will to do what you command. This we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated.
a few announcements as we continue our worship. 28th anniversary service is going to be here next week with a luncheon at 12.30, as well as followed by a baptism and membership service. So if you're able to be there, just to encourage those who are taking this next step in their faith and their journey, uh, I encourage you just to come out and to be a part of that. Uh, there is a membership class that's going to be on March 17th. So if you've missed this last one, or you're just curious, or in the future you're pondering whether to become a member or how, take this class too, and it'll be a great benefit for you. Sign up is on the bulletin board just outside. And the gospel will be presented here at Easter service as well. And so all the information is in the bulletin. So if you know of anybody that's in your family, somebody that might be at work, that is pressed, God's pressing upon their your heart for them. Please invite them, and uh, they will have that opportunity to hear the message of Christ. Our scripture reading today is in Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. Please say those words that will be with me in bold. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Well, let us continue to praise our Lord by singing our song of the month, which was introduced last week. Each verse tells why we can walk through life, knowing that we have a risen living Savior, and we sing of a future when we will be with Him forever. As we sing the chorus, let us culminate each time with an energetic proclamation, declaring that my Redeemer lives.
condemnation now remains. The stone of death is rolled away. My Redeemer lives. My Redeemer lives on heaven's throne. And in my very soul I know that my above he intercedes our sinless Savior perfectly no fear can follow where he guides his constant presence is my life no power on earth or heaven above can separate us from his love my Secure my future safe, he'll not forsake me to pray. Lives and he will not delay. My eyes will wake to brightest day, and in my flesh shall see him stand when Christ in glory comes again. Every eye will see him stand when Christ in glory comes again. My Redeemer lives, my Redeemer lives on heaven's throne, and in my very soul I know that my Redeemer lives. Please stand and we'll close by singing about our need for God to sustain us as we live each day to glorify Him.
to the Lord by obeying His Word. And so let's turn to the Scriptures here this morning to find uh, what God's will is for us so that we can do it and find the joy that we have in Him as well as the glory that we are made to display for Him. Let's bow for prayer and ask the Lord to help us. Father, we're thankful that we have this opportunity this morning to gather as brothers and sisters in Christ to encourage one another, and to worship you, our Heavenly Father. We're thankful for your plan of salvation. We praise you for sending your Son, that he came to earth to go to the cross, that he died for our sins and on the third day arose from the grave. We're thankful for the sending of your Holy Spirit that indwells every believer, empowering us to live a life that we could not do on our own. We pray that even as we look at the scriptures this morning, that we would not be hearers only, but that we would be doers of the word, that we would be blessed and you would be pleased. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's a pretty day uh, with the snow and the bright sun, and it's been an unusual winter, really, that we've had. Uh, Until last Sunday... Uh, only 20 centimeters of snow had fallen over the last several months. And last week, we received more than that in just an 18-hour period. And then yesterday, received quite a bit as well. And with all the snow, unfortunately, there are more car accidents around the city. And if you're a driver, you understand that it is a lot different driving uh, when the roads are slick. One of the dangers of driving in icy conditions is the instinct to overcorrect. When a driver feels that he is beginning to slide toward the roadside, it is a natural response to slam on the brake and to turn the wheel in the opposite direction. That usually makes things worse. And the same could be true in matters of theology. We sometimes try to correct a wrong belief or a practice by embracing its opposite. But doing that often trades the right ditch for the left. You see, the opposite opposite of a falsehood isn't always the truth. Sometimes it's just another falsehood to the opposite extreme. Our goal is always to avoid both ditches by properly 
understanding the straight rule of God and obey it. There are two opposite beliefs about the gospel that are both wrong. On the one side is legalism. Legalism believes that human effort can secure salvation. Legalism misunderstands the role of good works in the gospel and contradicts the Bible's message of grace. But an overreaction of legalism has led some to believe that good works are optional or even irrelevant for the Christian. This lawlessness also misunderstands the Bible's teaching of God's grace. While legalism and lawlessness are diametrically opposed, they both veer away from the straight path of the gospel. In Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10, we discover a refutation of these two false ideas. And we find here the biblical balance of how faith and works relate to each other in our salvation. So let's begin by reading Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. We find the main theme of this sentence by looking for the verb. Saved. You have been saved. Now, what is this talking about? From what have you been saved? Well, this is what we studied last Sunday from verses 1 to 7. The first three verses of chapter 2 explain the desperate condition of every human being. Paul says, you were dead in trespasses and sins. And then he goes on to explain that a person is alive physically. In fact, very alive to sinful influences. And then he mentions the influences of the world, of the devil, and of the flesh. And because of this sin, we are spiritually dead. You see, sin separates us from God. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This means that we are opposed to God in our sinfulness, and He is opposed to us in His holiness. And verse 3 explains the result of this condition. You were, by nature, children of God wrath, just as the others. And this speaks of God's wrath, God's future eternal judgment on every person who trespasses his law and falls short of his standard. The final pages of the Bible explain this judgment. Revelation 20, verses 14 and 15. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. What a sobering 
reality that awaits all who are spiritually dead. That is why the words of verses 4 and 5 are so thrilling. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Do you see the contrast? This is what Paul calls saved from dead in trespasses to alive with Christ, from the wrath of God to the grace of God. And this is the greatest need of every person right now. Without Christ, each will stand before God's judgment and cast into the lake of fire. We need to be saved from that. And this is what Paul says is available to us by God's grace. In verse 8, he repeats what he declared in verse 5. By grace you have been saved. Now, grace refers to a disposition of generosity, of giving. In this case, it is giving help to someone in need. Paul states that God is rich in mercy, great in in love and abounding in kindness and seeing our pitiable condition he intervenes to rescue us in other words we deserve his wrath but instead he offers his grace verse 8 further describes this salvation by grace as a gift a gift isn't earned And the recipient of a gift doesn't owe anything. Several years ago, my parents bought our family a gift for Christmas. My mom called me and said it was an electronic device. And she said, uh, I I ordered this Christmas gift for your family. And there's free shipping from the States to Canada. And so I just ordered it and had it delivered straight to your address. And so we received uh, the item from FedEx with a bill from Customs and FedEx extra service charge because they were so nice to pay our Customs for us on our behalf. And of course, they had a fee for doing that. And so our Christmas gift ended up costing me over $100. (laughs) For a while, I didn't tell my parents about that, but... I think by next Christmas, I said, don't ship anything. (laughs) Uh, No Christmas gifts shipped to us. Uh, It didn't work out so well uh, last time. Well, when we think of salvation as a gift from God, you don't have to worry about having to contribute to part of it. There are no service fees. There are no delivery charges. There is not even GST when it comes to God's gift. There is nothing we can do to contribute to our salvation. It is a gift of God. And to make it even clearer, Paul says in verse 9, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So verse 8, not of yourselves. Verse 9, not of works. So we encounter this word works. 
And we need to understand the proper role of works in our salvation. Paul is clear, not of works, not of yourselves. But what about faith? Paul says it is by grace that we are saved through faith. Isn't faith something that we do? Well, unless Paul is contradicting himself, faith is not a human work. So what is it? Well, faith is simply recognizing the trustworthiness of something or someone. It is trust, reliance, confidence. You are exercising faith right now. Every one of you is sitting on a chair. And that chair is doing all the work to keep you up. Now, maybe some of you are using your muscles because you're like, man, I don't trust this chair. But I don't think so. You all look pretty relaxed. Maybe some even too relaxed. Uh, no, but, uh, but you, you seem relaxed. Why? You don't even realize it. But you're just relying on the chair. The chair holds you up. Your faith isn't contributing in any way. The faith is simply to rest. The same would be true of this structure. It is upholding the roof. Now, most of us were not involved in the building of this uh, 20 years ago. Uh, some of you maybe were. Maybe some of you even saw the blueprint plans. I don't know. But most of us have not seen any type of engineering report to see how sound this structure is. But we're all trusting. And what if we all stopped believing that this roof would hold us up? Would it suddenly collapse because of our lack of faith? No, our faith is not contributing at all. Your chair is holding you up whether you are thinking about it or not. Whether or not. And if this, for some reason, if this roof started to collapse, if we all just believed a little bit more, would it stop it from happening? No, not at all. The only thing that our faith does is it allows us to benefit from relaxing in the chairs and benefit from being in this building. If you don't trust the chair, you wouldn't be sitting. If you don't trust the structure, you wouldn't still be here. Faith is simply reliance on something. And that is how our faith relates to salvation. Only God saves. Only He offers the gift. According to verse 6, we are only made alive together with Christ. We are only raised up together with Him. And we only sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Faith is simply turning to Christ, relying on Christ, resting in Christ as your Savior. In answer to the question, what must I do to be saved? The apostles answered, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Trust Him to do all the work for your salvation. And here's the difference between the true gospel and every other religion. For Christianity, 
Salvation is not an achievement of man. It is entirely the gift of God. Every other religion includes a system of good works required to merit salvation. Even some religions that call themselves Christian. And the key word is do. Do this to earn God's favor. Pray at this time and this way. And maybe with these words. Go to this place each week. Perform these rituals every day. And avoid these activities. Human performance is believed to achieve divine rewards. Last Sunday evening, Dr. Joel Arnold gave us a very helpful review of Islam. And he mentioned all of their rules required for devout Muslims. And they require sacrifice. They aren't easy. You have to be devoted but they are achievable. A devout Muslim can rely on his own good works to save him. But the Bible tells us that we have all sinned against God. And his perfect righteousness is unachievable. We fall short of his holy standard. And God is just. He doesn't excuse our sin because we try hard. No, all trespassers will be prosecuted. The gospel message of the Bible is that God is both just and merciful. Sin must be paid for. That's justice. But in God's mercy... He sent His Son to be punished in our place as our substitute. As we sing on the cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. This is in fulfillment of what the prophet Isaiah declared hundreds of years earlier. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his stripes, we are healed. And this isn't talking about healing from a sickness. No, this is spiritual healing. This is forgiveness of sins. This is eternal peace with God. You see, you and I have never could never do enough good works to earn salvation. Only God's sinless Son could achieve it on our behalf. What did Jesus declare when he was on the cross right before he gave up his spirit? It is finished. The, the debt has been completely paid for. The ransom is paid. The canceled debt. God's anger for our sin has been appeased. If you look ahead to the next paragraph, verse 
12 of chapter 2 states our condition in the past as without Christ, aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now that's pretty bleak. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were afar off have been brought near. How? By your good works. Is that right? By going to church faithfully. That will bring you near to God. By loving your neighbor. By following religious traditions. By trying to do more good deeds than bad acts. No. It isn't about your performance at all. Verse 13 states that you are brought near to God by the blood of Christ. Listen to how Paul says, how Paul says this in Romans 5, 8 and 9. But God demonstrated his own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us much more than having been justified by His blood, we have been saved from wrath through Him. A religion that teaches a work salvation overestimates the righteousness of men and underestimates the righteousness of God. And that is why the true gospel requires a perfectly righteous substitute to meet God's holy standard. And after living a devout life as a Pharisee for many years, Paul came to understand his need for a righteousness that he was incapable of. In Philippians 3, he said, Those things I consider gain to me, these I count loss, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. And this is what Martin Luther came to realize after studying the Bible. He was a professor at a university, and he was teaching a class through the book of Romans. And he came to verses 16 and 17 of the first chapter. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. For it is written, the just shall live by faith. And Luther wondered how the righteousness of God could possibly be good news. He had always thought of the justice of God as condemning, not comforting. But there it was, plain to see. The good news of the gospel is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. Here are Luther's own words. Night and day I pondered until I saw the link between the justice of God and the statement, the just shall live by faith. 
And then I grasped that the justice of God is the righteousness by which he justifies us through faith, by his grace and sheer mercy. Immediately, I felt myself to have been born anew, and the gates of heaven had been opened. The whole of Scripture gained a new meaning, and from that point on, the phrase, the justice of God, no longer filled me with hatred, but rather became unspeakably sweet by virtue of a great love. And with this new biblical understanding of salvation by faith alone, Luther became more troubled by what he heard from the established church. They were selling indulgences, telling people that they could pay money and receive forgiveness of sins. It could even buy forgiveness of sins of people that they loved who had previously died. Luther was grieved at these people being deceived into thinking that their good works could somehow merit God's forgiveness, that their own righteous deeds could earn them a place in heaven. And that was really the beginning of what became known as the Protestant Reformation. It was a revival of the true gospel of grace. And the five foundational convictions of the Reformers were Scripture alone that teaches salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone. And that is what Paul states in chapter 1, that God adopted us as sons by Jesus Christ to the praise of the glory of His grace. It's all about God's glory. And that is why Paul emphasizes in chapter 2, verse 9, that our salvation is not of works, lest anyone should boast. Since our salvation is all the work of God, we have no, nothing to boast in. He gets all the glory. Legalism robs God of His rightful glory. Legalism takes credit for something that sinful man cannot do. Legalism is a false religion that deceives people into thinking that they can do something. Salvation is given not by what we do, but by what Christ has already done. If your faith is not in the finished work of Christ on your behalf, then salvation right now is your greatest need. Will you believe in Jesus? Will you stop trying and start trusting? Will you just receive the gift of God? Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So that is the dangerous error of legalism. Trusting in good works to earn God's favor. But there is another serious error. As I mentioned earlier, this error is often committed by those who reject a works-based salvation. 
but their overcorrection lands them in the opposite ditch. Let's now look at Ephesians 2, verse 10. And here we see the term works again. So Paul has more to say. He says, he's still talking about works and the relationship of good works to our salvation. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The word workmanship here refers to something that is made by a craftsman or artist. It occurs only one other time in the New Testament. In Romans chapter 1, Paul explains that since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made. That's the word there, the things that are made. Even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. The point is that creation points to a creator. The things made tell us about the one who made them. And not only did God make the universe, he made you. Notice also the word created in verse 10. But this isn't speaking about God creating us as human beings, although that is true. No, this is about a new creation about God breathing spiritual life into a dead sinner. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. You see, before you were created in Adam, we are all his ancestors. And by our forefather Adam, sin entered the world. Romans 5.12 tells us that sin and death spread to all of us through Adam. 1 Corinthians 15.22 states it plainly. As in Adam, all die. But then it says this. Even so, in Christ, all shall be made alive. And that is what Ephesians 2.5 declares. Even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. So this life in Christ is really something entirely new. It is a complete transformation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 states it this way. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become New. And this new creation in Christ is God's work of art. Paul says his workmanship, his masterpiece. And this newly created craftsmanship has a purpose. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Do you see it? In verse 9, Paul makes clear that we are not saved by our good works. However, in the very next sentence, he wants to make sure that good works are not belittled or ignored. And God's purpose in saving you 
is for good works. And Paul goes on to explain that this is what God planned for us before He saved us. It reminds me of what we saw back in chapter 1, that God chose us in Christ, Paul says, before the foundation of the world. But this choice wasn't random or arbitrary. No, He chose us, verse 4 of chapter 1, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. That sounds to me like good works. And verse 10 of chapter 2 repeats that same theme. We were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So here's a second error that Paul refutes in this text. This falsehood states that good works are not necessary for the Christian. Now, they rightly believe that we are saved by grace through faith and not by works. But they overcorrect, insisting that good works do not necessarily follow faith. What they misunderstand is the entire point of the text. Verses 1 to 3 of chapter 2 are about the walk of the dead, the dead sinner. Do you see that? This is very important. A person dead in trespasses and sins has a certain kind of walk. But verse 4 states that God intervened. And verse 5 explains a transformation. Even when you were dead in trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. And now, verses 6 and 7 describe this new position of the believer, raised with Christ and seated with Christ in heavenly places. But salvation isn't only a new standing, it includes a new way of walking. That's what verse 10 says. As God's workmanship, we have been created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, spiritually dead people walk a certain way. And spiritually alive people walk a different way. When someone is saved, they are justified, which means they are declared righteous. They are also redeemed, which means they are set free from the bondage of sin. They are forgiven, which means their debt of sin is paid. But they are also regenerated, which means they have new life. They have a new heart with new desires and new attitudes and actions. The erroneous belief that we'll call lawlessness tries to separate salvation from regeneration. They claim that a person can believe in Jesus but not desire to live for Jesus. They claim that a person can walk in the direction of the dead man in Ephesians 2 verses 2 and 3, and yet still be delivered from God's wrath. 
But Ephesians 2.10 is clear about God's purpose in saving a sinner. It is for good works. We are His workmanship. And He creates us in Christ in order to walk in the path that He prepared for us. This is the point that James makes in his epistle. In chapter 2, he states that faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. He then says, I will show you my faith by my works. Now, James is not saying that good works saved him. No, he is making the point that a claim of faith in Christ without any evidence is a false claim. And he illustrates this by saying, you say you believe in God. That's fine. But even the demons believe and tremble. Yes, the the demons believe in God. They know the facts of the gospel. But they do not have Christ. They don't love God. Their works bear witness that they are God's enemies and they will face God's wrath forever. Martin Luther explained the relationship between faith and works this way. We are saved by faith alone. But the faith that saves is never alone. In other words, good works are not the root of salvation, but they are the fruit of it. One well-known Bible teacher published a book several years ago entitled Eternal Security, Can You Be Sure? One of the chapter titles is For Those Who Stop Believing. And this is what the author said. The Bible clearly teaches that God's love for his people is of such magnitude that even those who walk away from the faith have not the slightest chance of slipping from his hand. He also wrote, even if a believer for all practical purposes becomes an unbeliever, His salvation is not in jeopardy. Believers who lose or abandon their faith will retain their salvation. Now, is that what Scripture teaches? No. Someone who abandons Christ and no longer believes the gospel is bearing fruit that he never had Saving faith. That person may have believed in Christmas, Good Friday, and Easter, but they were never truly regenerated. That person may have wanted to go to heaven, but they were never in Christ. Jesus himself said in John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, 
He is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. And then Jesus says, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. You see, you can't abide in Christ and never bear fruit. You can't abide in Christ and not be His disciple. And if you are not abiding in Christ, then you have not been saved. You are still dead in trespasses and sins. The main point of Paul's letter to the Ephesians is our identity in action. God made us alive in Christ in order to walk in the good works He has planned for us. And He has given us everything we need for life and godliness. In his letter to the Philippian Christians, Paul commands them to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. Now that they were saved, they were to work out what God had already worked in. And then Paul gives them this assurance in the very next verse. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. That is what regeneration does. Our new life in Christ gives us new desires and new abilities. Yes, we will still sin. In fact, we will struggle for the rest of our time here on earth. But that struggle itself is a sign of God's grace, that we don't want it, that we fight it. We are not who we once were. By God's grace, we want to live for Him. And by His grace, we can bear fruit for His glory. So I hope this message has brought clarity and not confusion. I'd like to close by trying to simplify with some mathematical formulas. You may think, yeah, that always simplifies things. Well, hopefully this will help you. They're words, not numbers. We could say legalism is expressed by faith plus works equals salvation. And this is contrary to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, where it says that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But on the other extreme is lawlessness. And it can be expressed as faith equals salvation minus works. This believes that obedience to God's law is not a necessary result of saving faith. Salvation, they say, doesn't transform the life of the believer. And maybe you need something later or a second work, or maybe it never happens. And this is refuted by Ephesians 2, verse 10, that we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. 
The biblical view of the true gospel can be expressed like this. Faith equals salvation plus good works. You don't bring the good works on the other side of the equal sign. That will make it heresy. Good works do not precede salvation, but they are a natural result of it. Only faith in Christ brings salvation. But true saving faith is the result of God's regenerating work that produces spiritual fruit. So let's look to Jesus as our Savior by faith and obey Him as our Lord by grace. The hymn writer John Newton testified, I am not what I ought to be. Ah, how imperfect and deficient. I am not what I wish to be. I abhor what is evil, and I would cleave to what is good. I am not what I hope to be soon. Soon shall I put off mortality, and with mortality all sin and imperfection. Yet though I am not what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, nor what I hope to be, I can truly say I am not what I once was, a slave to sin and Satan. And I can heartily join with the apostle and acknowledge, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful for the gospel of Jesus Christ, your plan of redeeming us by his blood. We recognize that we could do nothing to save ourselves. Thank you for intervening because you are rich in mercy, because of your great love with which you loved us. Even when we were dead, you made us alive together with Christ by grace. We have been saved. Father, I pray for anyone here who has been trusting in their own works. And maybe they've been trying hard. Maybe they've been frustrated at falling short. Father, I pray that you would open their eyes to see that they cannot achieve salvation and that they would simply trust in Christ that you would draw them to your Son, that your Holy Spirit would awaken them, that they would believe and become your children and receive the gift of eternal life. And Father, we also thank you for the good works that you have prepared for us, that our life is full of purpose, a purpose that will last for all eternity, that you saved us and not simply saved us from hell, but you changed us and you are progressively making us more and more into the image of your Son. So Father, help us to be zealous for good works. Help us to work out our own salvation even as we rely on you who is at work in us to give us the desire, and the ability to please you. We are confident that he who began a good work in us 
will continue to perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. So, Father, we submit ourselves to you, asking you to produce that fruit in our lives so that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's close our service by standing together and singing about our Jesus, who is the Lord, who will reign forever. Now may you be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God to the praise of His glory. Amen.